we're going to spend the next two weeks uh, looking at the idea of marriage and relationships. And there's, uh, there's probably no more biblical topic that we're more attracted to talking about and more afraid and repellent to talking about. Because within this discussion and with, within our own experiences, and it might be your own marriage or it might have been a family that you grew up with, or it might have been an experience where you got close to marriage and something scared you away or, or pulled you away from it, where we have this sort of internal dialogue that feels a massive tension between sort of the high calling of, of a marriage relationship where you're called to deep intimacy and real unity and permanent commitment along with our incredible desires to meet that and then to feel that and to experience that. And it's in tension with, with our own knowledge of ourselves that even past our own self-deceit that says, there's no way I can do this. Or there's no way I want to do this. Or there's no way I want to do this honestly. And our struggle with this is not just inside the church, it's outside the church. But when outside the church, we don't think about it in our culture in terms of calling and capability. We think about it in terms of uh, incredible desires and deep cynicism. Have you noticed this sort of in American culture? That we have these two competing realities now that sort of drive most of what we grab from culture. We, we have overwhel- overwhelming desires for marriage and love. I mean, th- this, is, um, this is like the subject line of two-thirds of our movies. Have you, have you ever noticed this? Every romantic comedy has the same plot line. It really, I mean, it really does. It just change out the characters. The plot line is this. Um, arrogant guy uh, meets sweet girl. She re- he repels her because he's arrogant at first. Then he sweeps her off her feet. Then he makes a foolish mistake. She's repelled. Then he comes in and wins the day. And everything goes happily ever after. And you've watched that movie 150 times. You just change their characters. You know, now we're on, we're on the 21st season of The Bachelor. The 21st season of that. I think there's 12 seasons of The Bachelorette. This is the subject of most songs. We cannot stop singing about this. We cannot stop writing about this. We cannot stop going and watching the same fairy tale over and over and over and again, and we still cry. And our hearts are still warmed. And no matter what you believe, you will listen to it, and you will watch it, and you will read it, and you will be sucked into it. But simultaneously, there's a confusion going on because with that, we are deeply, deeply cynical. And one author said this, he said, you know, love and sex in the seven, uh, 60s was, was called making love. And then in the 80s, it got real biological, and we called it having sex. And then today, it's just become a mechanical term that we just say hooking up. Because what's happened with us is these deep desires, these incredible expectations have just been washed away and have been salted and soured with the incredible disappointment with the deep frustration that what we went after, we did not find it. We did not find in this other person. And so we, we've become so obsessed with simple things like pornography to the point where it's not even odd to talk about it. We just know people struggle with it. We just know people are engaging in it. And then the question is, 
how much should we even be doing this? And what that's done is not produced a healthy balance for us in marriage and relationships, but it's produced a deep confusion for us. And 25% of people under the age of 30 are wondering whether or not marriage is just a fading institution. It's because 46% of kids today grow up in a, what, what, what we refer to as a non-traditional family home. To the point where in our own experiences, marriage doesn't seem like something that lasts. But like I just said, we keep writing books about it. We keep watching movies about it. We keep writing songs about it. Because we're wondering if that thing my heart is chasing for is really real. And what, I, what, what this text is telling you is that it is real. And it's found in the tree of life. But you, in your experience in this world, wonder if that's really there. And so let's find out if that's really there. The tree of life. What is it? Why do you want it? How do you get it? And what do you do with it? Very simple. The tree of life. What is it? Why do you want it? How do you get it? What are you going to do with it? First, the tree of life. What is it? Well, we're told in the early chapter of Genesis, in, in 2.9, it says, in the middle of the Garden of Eden was a tree of life. God put it there in the center for everything to be built around, for everything to look towards. And what it represented is it gave the apex of the greatness of creation. That it, it was to be the taste of glory, the greatest part of the garden. And uniquely enough in Scripture, it's only mentioned 12 times. It's mentioned four times in these early chapters in Genesis. It's mentioned four times, then again at the end of the book of Revelation, to talk about the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. And then it's mentioned four times in the book of Proverbs to talk about the wise life. And what it tells us about relationships is that when you come into them, part of our problem is you don't know the potentiality of how rich the person that you're married to or that you're engaged to or you're thinking about married is. You, you don't know how rich the possibilities of that are. Because what this text says, the proverb says, is the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. It doesn't say might be. It doesn't say could be. It doesn't say will be. It says is a tree of life. And in the tree of life, what, what it was, is the fruit of it tasted like perfect intimacy. It tasted like perfect unity. It tasted like every relationship you've ever longed for. Some of the other texts in Proverbs tell us more about what this, what this fruit tasted like. In Proverbs 3, 17 and 18, it says this, her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths of peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold fast are called blessed. So in some ways what the tree of life was is it had a component of, of intellect. It had a component of knowledge that the fruit of it, somebody who, who is a tree of life, you will engage them. And they will have wisdom that you will say, yes, that's exactly how we should think about art. That's exactly how we should think about our resources. Or that's exactly how we should think about our relationships. Or that's exactly how we should listen. 
Well, that's exactly what we should be reading. That you would engage with such a person that their knowledge of the world, their knowledge of yourself, their knowledge of the relationships would be more profound than anything you've ever tasted. But the Proverbs go further. It says this in 13.12, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. That somebody who is a tree of life in this cynical, cynical world still offers a whisper of hope with each interaction. That when you begin to talk to them, they don't come out as sarcastic about every topic that we make fun of. Just saying, that's never going to work. This country's going to sham. Marriage is an impossibility. Why even try? They still hold on to hope. And it's a breath of fresh air. It says again in chapter 15, verse 4, the proverb says this, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness and it breaks the spirit. Meaning this, that somebody who's a tree of life, the dominant conversation with them is encouragement. Most of, the most unattractive thing is to be in a relationship with somebody where two-thirds of their words to you are criticism. Where it feels like they're picking on you all the time. Where they're pointing out your mistakes, your shortcomings, your flaws. But somebody who's a tree of life still speaks reality to you. But their words of encouragement are so regular and so common that it feels like that's the main voice to you. You see it vividly, what this feels like in, chapter, in Genesis 2, 24. When it says, the man and the woman were together, they were naked, and they felt no shame. The word naked means to be, it doesn't just mean physically, it means in the Hebrew to be fully revealed, totally exposed, nothing hidden. It means they were together, and there were no secrets. There were no lies. There was nothing to keep from one another. There was no, what will she think if I bring up this? Or will he pick on me? Or will he roll his eyes? Or will he think less of me if I tell him this? There was none of that. And it says, and they felt no shame. There was no suspicion. There was no fear. There was no wondering if there was ever going to be a moment of rejection between the two of them ever. There was never any of those moments. And it was a tree of life. And they tasted it back and forth. You know, this is why we've become so obsessed with internet relationships or texting relationships. It's because we think we've found a third way to be uh, naked and unashamed with somebody. If you read anything about internet relationships, the dominant reason people get involved with those is that they say, I felt like I could be myself with no fear. And so we are off the charts obsessed with those. But the problem with those relationships is because after a while, you realize they're not real. And they don't come back fulfilling to you. But the tree of life, listen, it never came back empty. You know, with, with internet relationships, the more unrealistic relationship that you engage in, the problem is, is it makes you less real and real and real. 
But the majesty of the tree of life is the more you tasted it, you didn't become fake. You became more and more human. You became more and more real. And you tasted glory. In the text, it's saying, when you think in marriage that you've made a mistake, you need to come back to this promise and understand you are a tree of life. And so is the person who you have met. The text says, don't believe that cynical lie. Secondly, why do you want this so badly? Why do we want the tree of life? Well, if you go back to those early chapters in Genesis, we're told this in 2.15, it says, the man, excuse me, God looked at the man and said it is not good for him to be alone. And here's why that's so astonishing. Because if you go through the entire creation account and the poem in Genesis 1, it says this refrain over and over again, God made this and said it was good. God made this and said it was good. God made this and said it was good. And then we have this section in chapter 2 where it looks at man alone and says, this is not good. And so it makes you ask the exegetical question, why in the world would this be? Why in the world would God make something that's not very good? Well, it's because in chapter 1, when God is going to make man, it says this, let us make man in our image. You see, the Christian God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Forever and ever and ever, he has existed with and in himself in perfect intimacy, in perfect unity, in perfect communion, in perfect friendship, in perfect love forever and ever and ever. And if he is going to make a people who are like him, it must be a people who exist in relationship because he is not a God who has ever been alone. And so if you're going to reflect the God who made you, you cannot be alone. And listen, the reality of that is not limited to marriage, but it is most profound in marriage. And so the longing of your heart to be intimate with somebody, to be committed to somebody, to be after somebody, to be thinking about somebody, even in this moment, is a Trinitarian reality that is sewn into the fabric of your life. Which is why if you are alone, it feels like hell. Even if you have lots of companions, loneliness is at the basement of hell. The poet David Wilcox, he said this, The night I fell in sorrow, I knew I was alone. A dozen good time friendships, but my heart was still unknown. Even, even if you know a bunch of people, if nobody knows you, do you know why that feels so painful? It's because you were made in the image of a God. You must be known. And it's why you so desperately want to be known in your marriage. Nobody here this morning wants a marriage that's just roommates. If you're in a marriage right now where you think your spouse is content with just simply living together and not having deep commitment, deep intimacy, rich conversations, I promise you they're not content with that because they weren't made to be content with that. It's just difficult. And most profound about this is when Satan wanted to attack, he didn't attack the physical creation. He didn't attack 
our relationship to the creation. He didn't attack the relationship of creation to creation. He came to attack a marriage. And you need to know that the birth of evil and sin in this world came out of the context of marriage. Which means this, the loss of Eden will be most magnified in your marriage. Look, the effects of sin, which are all around you in the world, they're around you in your job, they're around you in this world when you look out in our society, they're around us in the physical creation, but look, they are magnified to an almost deafening level in a marriage because that's where it began and that's where Satan wanted to attack. And so when you get into a marriage, the beauty that you're supposed to taste from a tree of life about being naked and unashamed, that's where it's most difficult. Have you noticed this? Even the person who promised to yourself, they said, I give you my life. I'm fully committed to you. Why is it still hard to tell them the truth? Even if they've made a public commitment in front of all of their family, all of their friends, and before God, why is it so profound? Because in the context of marriage is where the loss of Eden tastes most sour. Or why is it somebody else in this world can shame you and it stings, but when your spouse does, it's hard to get over it? Don't you find yourself self-justifying all the time in your marriage? But you don't understand this. You weren't there when I was 10. You weren't there when I was in college and I was going through this. You don't know what it's like to be a man. You don't know, understand what it's like to be pregnant. We're always, always, always self-justifying because being unashamed in a marriage feels more difficult almost than it does in the world itself. And so our default pattern is to just do what Adam and Eve do, is to blame shift. And so what we do is we make our spouses evil number one in the place where we're supposed to have our biggest cheerleader and the richest intimacy and the deepest commitment. Look, this is why you're frustrated in your marriage. This is the ache of the world. You're not mad because your spouse isn't better looking. You're not angry because your spouse doesn't make more money. You're not angry because your spouse took you to a place that you didn't think your life was going to go. You're angry, listen, because you lost Eden. And you feel it every day. And being with this person in that house reminds you of it moment after moment after moment after moment. And you're aching, aching for a tree of life. That's the frustration of life, and that's why we want it so badly. So thirdly, how in the world do we get that? Well, the proverb says the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. It's not the fruit of the obedient. It's not the fruit of the gifted. It's not the fruit of the good-looking. It's the fruit of the righteous, which means the potentiality, the thing that you long for, that intimacy, that commitment, the ability to be fully known, to someone know your secrets, to know your dreams, to know your journal, and it to be welcomed comes through the gospel. And that's good news. 
Because if, if it's the fruit of the obedient, here's what that will do, is it will either give you a superiority complex where you only think a good marriage and rich relationships are possible if your spouse will get it together. If they would stop doing this, if they would change this, if they would go after this, and you will look down on them, you will be extremely judgmental, and you will minimize your own shortcomings all the time. Well, at least I don't do it like this. I don't, I don't struggle like you do with this. If it's the, but if, if it's not just a superiority complex, it might give you an inferiority complex where you think it's the fruit of the obedient that brings a tree of life, and you struggle with stuff more than your spouse does. Do you know what you'll do? This is how you know you, you, if you think the tree of life comes to the fruit of obedience. If your marriage is marked with fig leaves, you know what fig leaves are? There's just ways of hiding, ways of covering yourself, ways of shielding maybe this one part of your life that your spouse has never known about. Even after 15 years, even after 25 years, they still don't know this. Do you, do you know why you do that? It's because you believe that the fruit of the tree of life comes for the obedient. And I'm telling you this morning, it doesn't come through that. It comes to the righteous. It's not, it's not the fruit of the good-looking either. Because if, if it was the fruit of the good-looking then Brad Pitt would have never dumped Jennifer Aniston and gone for Anna Jolie and dumped her and then gone to somebody else because it, the, phys- the physique will never stay. It will never bring you the rich taste of contentment. But it comes through the righteousness of Jesus. Look, if, you, if you've ever thought this moment, if my spouse would just change this, if they would just get rid of this, if they would just stop this, then I would be all in. Or then I would not be tempted to leave. Or then I would be tempted to go to somebody and get help. If they would just fix this. Look, at the end of the book of Genesis, or excuse me, the end of chapter Genesis, chapter 3 in Genesis, it says this, that they're expelled from the Garden of Eden after sin. And it says the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life was guarded by a cherubim with a flaming sword. Look, your spouse is not standing in front of this tree of life, guarding it. It's blocked from every marriage. If you sit around and think, well, those people, they have intimacy, and they have unity. And if my wife could just be like her, we could be better friends. Or if you see their marriage, well, he, that father prays with their family all the time. And if he would just do that, we would be more spiritually healthy in this family. Look, your spouse is not guarding the tree of life. Everyone's spouse is blocked from this tree of life. And the only way back to that perfect unity, back to that intimacy, back to the rich fulfillment is if somebody goes under that knife. Enter the gospel. Because do you know what the cross is? The cross is not just Jesus dying for your sins so you can get a free out of hell card. 
It's Jesus going under that knife to bring you back to the tree of life. We're going to go into this more next week. But it's only through the gospel that you can begin to taste perfect intimacy and rich unity and deep friendship and real commitment in a way you will never find with someone's physique or with just trying to be moralistic because in the gospel, you're called to be marked with repentance and forgiveness. And I'll elaborate on this next week, but do you know what happens if your marriage is marked by repentance and forgiveness? If you know that your spouse believes that they are the most broken person in the world, do you know what that means? It means every time you see something that frustrates you with them, you can go talk to them about it. Because you know they're not going to be they're not going to be defensive. You know they're not going to be self-justifying. You know they're not going to be trying to hide it or lie about it because they're marked by the gospel because they believe that I'm totally broken. But they also, when you go to them, they won't go into despair. They won't go into this sulking moment where they say, I know I'm the worst and I'm depressed about it and I can't get out of bed about it because they know I'm safe in the loving arms of Jesus. And so what you're saying to me right now All it is is a taste of fruit of the tree of life. Because we're sharing the deepest, darkest things in this world. And they're not in anger, and they're not in self-defense, and they're not in frustration, but they are in safe, forgiving, kind love. Look, the next time your spouse does something... And you just sort of say, I am so, I'm sick and tired of it all. I, I really am. I'm just, I'm sick and tired of it. Ask yourself this question. Is God sick and tired of my sin? Psalm 103, it says, he is slow to anger and abounding in love. Or the next time you, you look at your spouse and you, you cannot separate the heinous thing that they have done with who they are. Ask yourself this question, does God view me as sin? Does God look at me as a manipulator? Does God look at me as a control freak? Does God look at me as a pervert? Psalm 103, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so has he separated our sins from us. When you begin to do that, you're bringing the gospel to bear on your marriage. And then you're beginning to taste the fruit of the tree of life. And when you do that, you begin to have rich intimacy and authentic friendship. So what does it, fourthly, look like to do that? The tree of life, it represents the greatness of life. We want it so bad because we're in God's image but we've, been, we've lost Eden and we want it so badly back. It only comes through the gospel, but once we get it in the gospel, what does it look like to be a tree of life to my spouse? The proverb says this, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who captures souls is wise. In the NIV it says, he who wins souls is wise. Now, we often use that text to talk about evangelism. 
And it's, it's not less than that. But the, the phrase is so much more. Because in the Hebrew, the word hasad used for capture or for win there, it's not an athletic term, nor is it like a conversion term. It was a military battle term that meant to fight to the death. And the idea for you is this in your marriage. Look, you know this. There's a battle in your home. If you're engaged, good news. There's a battle waiting. And you can either fight against somebody or you can fight for somebody. Because it says, here's the way to the tree of life and here's how you are a tree of life to your spouse. When the war begins, you don't pick up your sword against somebody. You pick up your sword for somebody. And you begin to wage war, not against your spouse, but for your spouse, for the sake of your marriage. Now, let's get practical for just a minute, and this is so brief. But what might it look like to fight to the death for your marriage? to fight for your spouse and not fight against them. I think, one, it, it would look like you being willing to be told how you wound your spouse. What if you went to them and sat before them and said, tell me about me, and you just listened? And you didn't try to justify anything they said. You didn't try to dismiss. You didn't try to caveat or explain it away. You just listened. Or what if you... You stopped reacting and just pursued your spouse. That is the idea. If you ever been in this scenario where you say, Well, I was going to give you a great night, but since you're in such a foul mood, the heck with that. But if you just pursue anyway. And the bad reaction you get doesn't control how you do and how you act, but you pursue forward anyway after them. Or what if? you began in your marriage to take actions that are ahead of your feelings. You know, we are, we are way too feelings-driven in this culture. Or we say, I just, I just don't feel like that. I don't feel like being with you. I don't feel like talking about it. I don't feel like going there emotionally with you right now. What it means to begin to pursue the fruit of the tree of life is that you begin to take actions that are ahead of your feelings. If you don't want to talk about it, talk about it. If you don't want to go, go. If there's no spark, pursue anyway. You know, if you're physically out of shape, um, the way that you get in shape is you don't wait for yourself to get a desire to do it. You just do it. And this magical thing happens is as you're running as you're working out and as you're pursuing, like eight weeks into it, you're like, oh, I really like this. It's, that's wisdom. To begin to take actions in your marriage that are ahead of your own feelings and pursue them. And one thing, if it's hell in your marriage, go get help. Take the problems outside just your home. Let people in. And, and more than confiding in a friend, go to a pastor, go to a, go to a psychologist, 
Go to a counselor. Go to a group of friends and say, help us find the tree of life. And if one of your spouses doesn't want to do that, fight to the death for your marriage for them. And they may follow you. I'll close you with this story that came from an amazing little book that one of my mentors gave me called Small Miracles. It's a story about a short, um, kind of stocky, bald man who one late night after work uh, in downtown Manhattan was walking by Central Park when he heard a scruffle in a bush, what sounded like a, a girl being attacked. He heard the sound, it sounded pretty dangerous and pretty urgent, but he thought to himself, I'm pretty old, I'm pretty out of shape, I'm tired from a long day, what could I actually do? How much could I actually help? How could I actually assist her in this moment? And then he thought, forget all that, and he jumped into the bush. And as he jumped in, this girl was being assaulted by this guy. The assaulter was so startled that somebody entered the bush, he immediately jumped up and ran. So the guy began to console the woman, but the woman began to think, this man's going to attack me too. So she's kicking and screaming and fighting back with him just as much. And he says, calm down. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to help. I'm here to help. And as he began to say that, she was screaming, screaming, screaming. And he said, calm down, girl. It's, it, everything is okay. And she heard his voice. And then she said to herself, daddy, is that you? He had saved his own daughter. Look, you know who, he didn't know who's in the bush, but you do. Because you stood in front of a church and took vows with them. Even when they're kicking and screaming and want nothing of it, jump into the bush. Look, here's the beauty of the gospel. When you were kicking and screaming and said, leave me alone, Jesus went in. And he fought to his own death for you. Look, when you begin to do this, you will become wise. And you will begin to realize this person who I have given my life to is not trying to take my life. But they may, in fact, be a tree of life. May God grant us all this and bless our marriages. Let me pray for us. Lord, what a sacred, sacred thing this is that we have been given into a small picture of Trinitarian bliss. But Lord, for many of us, we've had moments or seasons or years where it's tasted more like hell. Through the power of the gospel, Lord, would you begin to heal us would you begin to bring us out of darkness and into light? Would the beauty of Christmas even draw our marriages into the light? Lord, not, not for our own humiliation, not for the, the fear of our reputation, but for the beauty of life that we may taste that tree. In Jesus' name, amen.